This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Anthony Anarino. Anthony spent nearly 20 years selling and leading a sales force in the highly commoditized industry of staffing before becoming a writer and publishing daily at thesalesblog.com. During his time at sales, he recognized the strongest differentiation for a salesperson is their ability to create value for their prospective client within the sales conversation. Anthony joins me today to talk about his career and his latest book, Leading Growth, The Proven Formula for Consistently Increasing Revenue. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Anthony. Thanks for having me. It's good to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. And I'm curious, where does your, uh, where does your story as an author begin? In 2009, uh, I was watching Tom Peters uh, write a blog very consistently. Not daily, but very consistently. And uh, I've, I've had the chance to interview him three times, so he's one of the people that I've uh, sort of modeled some of the things I do after. And at the same time, I was watching Seth Godin. And Seth, you know, has been writing a blog post every day for a very long time. I, I don't even know how many he has, but it's a lot. And I decided I'm going to start writing every day. I'm going to share everything that I know, all my experiences, and I'm just going to put it out there for people to, to look at and see if I can help people with this. And I sat down with my wife and I said, I'm going to uh, change what I do for a living and I'm going to start uh, speaking at large sales conferences and doing some training and consulting. And I'm going to start by getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning so I can write a blog post every day. And uh, she said, I have no idea what any of that means, but <laughs> I love you and, and I support you. Uh, and that, that's where it started. So I got up at 5 o'clock and then I started writing a, a post every day. If you go back and look at them, they are uh, not very well structured. And uh, it was just like learning to write. And you know how to write, but then when you actually start writing every day, you realize that you're not 
as good of a writer as you would want to be. And it takes time for you to do that. So I've been writing now for uh, 13 years. So it's 13 years on December 28th that I've been writing every single day, minus 13 days when I went to Tibet and I didn't think I was going to have Wi-Fi to be able to put blog posts up. But it turns out China uh, mobile is way better than anything that we have here. And I went to Mount Everest and I had a clearer conversation with my father who lives in the same city as I do from Tibet. It was even clearer than it would be here. So I could have done it, but I didn't know that. So I've written for 13 years about five years in, um, Portfolio came to me and said, um, why haven't you written a book? And I said, well, I have. And they said, well, we can't find it. And I said, because I haven't published it yet. I'm going to self-publish it in January. And then they went on to explain to me all of the things that I've done wrong, and, uh, <laughs> which is always – it's always good when somebody says, uh, you know that you've done everything wrong, and you're like, okay. <laughs> so I, I said, well, what did I do wrong? And they said – well, the name of the book is 17 Elements. That's a terrible name for a book. And I said, okay, well, that's that's what I've got, but I've got time. I can do something about it. And and then he said, what is the book? And I said, well, it's basically a competency model, but I turned it into a success book. And he said, well, how many books are you going to sell? And I said, I'm going to sell 30,000 books. <laughs> and he said, where did you get that number? And I said, that's the number of books my friends sell. <laughs> So I'm, I'm going to do about what they do. And uh, he said, well, you have a whole bunch of problems here, so on and so forth. And eventually I said, listen, you have a lot of opinions. <laughs> You've never read the book. Why don't I send you the book and then you tell me what I need to do to fix it and maybe we'll do the second book together. Uh, and, and, and he said, yeah, that sounds great. So I sent it. And then nothing happened for about six days. And then on the seventh day, I got my offer for a three-book deal, and uh, they, they took the book. The book was already edited. It's beautifully edited, and they didn't have to do anything. I think there were like three red lines in the book altogether, and uh, we corrected those. And that was a USA Today bestseller. Uh, we sold 12,000 books in the first week, uh, and it was because I built the audience before I wrote the book. Yeah. Did, did you wind up beating that $30,000 30, number with, yeah. uh, with that first one? Yeah. And then I did the second one, uh, a huge author mistake. You want to give your book some time, but I had 10 months later, I produced the second book. We published uh, The Lost Art of Closing. And then a year after that, I did um, Eat Their Lunch. So I did three books in three years. And now I've done uh, five books in six years. Yeah. And six, well, I, book number six is being written now. That's a uh, that that's a pace specifically for nonfiction. That's a um, that's a that's a fast pace. Um, it, it is a fast pace, too fast. Yeah, you need to give a book time. What you know, as you started, just kind of going back to even writing every day, and you mentioned, um, you know, you certainly become a better writer over time, having having written every day for so many years. You know, I always like to think writing is a muscle, like any muscle, it, it gets stronger the more you use it um, to some extent. Um, what did you learn about yourself when you started your writing journey and just kind of doing it the way that you chose to do it? I, I, 
I have this thing that I really like to do in books, but the first couple books, you're sort of constrained by the word count, number one. And you're sort of constrained because there's some things that you would want to say and you have a little bit of concern about what what you're saying and how you say it. And at some point, so I've been I've been a liberated human being since I was 12. So at 12 years old, I was liberated in just about every way you can be liberated. I started working, washing dishes. I've been working full time, 13 years old, making hundreds of dollars a week for overtime. But the it takes a little while before you can liberate that part of you as a writer. And and when you realize anybody who has any criticism about your book is probably not coming to your funeral, which means you don't have to worry too much about what they think about you because they're not going to be in that small group of people uh, that's listening to your eulogy. So once you recognize that, you just go ahead and liberate yourself and you say what you want to say. What was going on in your life at 12 and 13 where you were you were liberated? Um, my dad left um, my mom with four kids when I was uh, seven years old. And um, she was taking care of us, so she was working, you know, from the time she got up until the time she went to bed. And... Uh, I was a street kid, so I was outside Generation X. So Generation X is the underprotected, like go outside, come back later. Uh, and then the next generation after that was stay inside, stay on Skype and Xbox. Right. And, and, uh, and it's a different sort of thing. So I was out uh, around people in, uh, in an interesting environment where there was a lot of, um, I would say, difficult human beings that you would run into. And, uh, and so you, you grow up really fast when you're in that environment. And, uh, basically by the time I was 12 or 13, uh, I was completely liberated and I wasn't on my own. I lived in my mom's apartment. She mm. did a great job taking care of me. But for me, I was working full time and uh, taking care of myself. I was allowed to sleep in front of Buzzard's Nest Records so I could take my $250 check for a couple of weeks and buy the entire seventh row of Kiss on the Lick It Up tour <laughs> and then uh, sell the tickets to my friends. So I was pretty liberated. So I was l literally allowed at 15 to sleep in front of a record store. <laughs> now I've got Paul Stanley's voice in my head singing, <laughs> Don't want to wait till I know you better. Yeah. I always like to say, because um, I'm, I'm part of the... Generation X generation as well. That Generation X was, was, was more Generation BMX. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. No helmet. <laughs> no helmet. <laughs> right. You want the uh, best wheels you can get. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, how did that kind of growing up the way you did, the time period when you did, the freedoms you were given, sort of working from such a young age, um, how did that impact your career in sales? How do you suppose that impacted your career in sales? Well, the second job after my first job was washing dishes for a, a giant uh, banquet center. And we would do like seven course meals there. So there was a lot of dishes that had to be done. There'd be 2,000, 3,000 people. And so that's why we worked so much. But when I got tired of that job, I found my way to a place where they were doing bike-a-thons for muscular dystrophy. And my job was to cold call people and convince them to have a bike-a-thon. 
And uh, I was the only person that got not only one deal, but I got two deals while I was working there making cold calls, literally just dialing the number to churches and community groups. And I'm 15 at the time. I'm making these calls. They had a little bit of a script, but not much of one. But I got two deals, and then I got a job at a skating rink. And I got a job at a skating rink, and it turns out that when you're 15 and there's 15-year-old girls at a skating rink, you don't really want to make cold calls very much after that. Like <laughs> once you understand that there's a better place to be. Right. And uh, they begged me to come back. They're like, you're the only one that's ever got a bike-a-thon. <laughs> <laughs> and I got two. And they said, we really want you to come back. And I'm like, not a chance. <laughs> I'm out of here. Was it an ice skating rink or a roller skating rink? Roller. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. They're few and far between these days. Yeah. Now they're 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 using uh the roller blades. Right. Right, right. So in lines versus the uh the classic four wheels, you know, two and two. I, I worked for a place that got the very first uh roller blades uh in Columbus. And uh they said, What do you think about these? I said, They're terrible. <laughs> they're the worst <laughs> roller skates ever. And I said, I don't think this is going to take off at all. <laughs> it did. Um, so, so much for foresight. Yeah. Um, well, what can you tell me about uh, about this book, Leading Growth, The Proven Formula for Consistently Increasing Revenue? What can you share with uh, me and the audience? Well, I wrote four books for sales first. <clears throat> so I've got The Only Sales Guide, The Lost Art of Closing, Eat Their Lunch, and then Elite Sales Strategies. But if you work with sales organizations – or I would say just really any organization, at some point you realize that the leaders need help to be able to produce the results that they need. And so a lot of times they think, well, it's my people. Uh, no, it's not. <laughs> You're responsible for those people. So I, I wrote a book for sales managers and sales leaders. That's just what I normally write, which would be practical, tactical advice about how to have conversations. So in the world of sales, everything is now uh, conflated to just technology. Like that's all we care about is technology. Started with the CRM, and now there's every kind of tool in the world, like video things, every every single thing you can think of. Prospecting sequences that are completely automated, and I am uh, I'm on the other side of this, so I'm uh, out of time here with uh, the current environment. I've I don't know if you know this book. It's uh, called uh, Boyd, and it's about a fighter pilot who created – he's basically our son, Sue, in America. And he came up with something called the OODA loop. So John, that's John Boyd. And Boyd was always helping the Air Force make airplanes, and he kept telling them, stop gold-plating these things. I want a, a missile uh, with guns on the front and a, a lawn chair. That's all I want because it's your turn radius and, and what you can do. But John constantly reminded everybody, it's people, ideas, technology, in that order. And now we're at this time in, in the evolution of humans where it's technology first. And it should not be technology first. So I'm only really concerned, Mike, about the relationship between the salesperson and a client and the salesperson and their conversation that they have with their managers. So that's my number one priority. So I spend a lot of time helping people understand how to communicate with each other, how to get things done, and in a large part, how to generate net new revenue. Yeah. Um, you know, in the intro I read, 
um, that you recognize the strongest differentiation for a salesperson is their ability to create value for their prospective client. Um, what does that mean, creating value for their prospective client? Thank you for giving me my favorite question that I hardly <laughs> ever get asked, but that's my favorite. Um, when we say create value, what a lot of people think about is I have this product and I have this service, and if they buy it, they will get a better result. So that's what most people think value creation is. But there's a value creation that happens to come before that, and that is the conversation that the salesperson has with the person who's buying or trying to buy. And that conversation is about helping them understand how to make the decision, how to understand why they have the problems that they have, to understand all the factors that they need to consider, the different models that people use to deliver those results, and what is going to work the best for them, and other things like they have a buyer's journey, but because we sell every day, we know how better to make them uh, successful at that buyer journey, and they need help with all kinds of things. They need help building consensus. So the things that we would normally think about, like tell them about your company, tell them about your clients, tell them about your products and services, that is not value creation. That's just pitching and trying to position your company. What the buyer wants is somebody who knows more than they do so that they can learn what they need to do to make the best decision and get the best possible result for their company. And that's really what they want. They want certainty. But when you say my company's great, yeah, everybody's company's great. Like your competitor's good and you're, uh, you're good, they're good, their products are good, their services are good, so are yours. So what's the variable? The variable is which salesperson creates greater value for the group people that are making that decision. And we sometimes forget about that and think like we can just go right to if they buy this, they'll get better results. Probably will, but they won't buy if they don't have that conversation or in B2B sales conversations. It, it'll be many conversations. Right. It's almost like you've got to be a consultant first and right. maybe a salesperson second. Yeah, that's exactly um, right. You definitely yeah. want to be consultative. And when you ask salespeople, like, what makes you consultative? They'll say, well, I don't use any high pressure um, strategies. And I ask really good questions. That is not what consultative means. Consultative means I give you counsel. I give you advice. I give you recommendations. And I tell you what you need to do to get the better results because that's what a consultant does. Uh, they don't they don't pitch the product or service. They are giving you advice. And th that's really where salespeople go wrong. Yeah. Well, I'm thinking about my friend um, Kevin uh, as I ask this next question because he does lead uh, a pretty large uh, sales team in the financial services sector. Um, what's, uh, what's a good way for Kevin – um, to, well, what's Kevin going to get out of this book? Um, let me, let me ask that. What, what, what are some big lessons that Kevin's going to get out of this book? Um, what's Kevin messing up right now? I, um, I, I know not, he's, he's probably not messing anything up. <laughs> he, he would, he would never admit to anything. That's for sure. Um, the book starts out with vision. And what, a, one of the things that I notice with sales organizations is that they have things that they want, but they don't turn it into something that they can communicate to their team. So I think that that's one of the most important starting points. From there, you have to start looking at communication. And um, Jeff Weiner, who was the CEO of LinkedIn, said uh, just about the time 
you're you're completely worn out from saying the same thing. People are just starting to listen. <laughs> like they didn't hear it the million times you said it before. And the more that you can communicate and stay on course with your vision, the better the results will be. What Kevin might learn though is let me say what I think this is one that it might get him. So there tends to be different styles for leadership. A lot of people want to be uh, a consensus builder. They want to be a democratic, like I'm going to listen to everybody and take all this in. That's a really, really nice way to be a leader, except for it doesn't work very well when you have to ask somebody to be accountable for some result. And it sounds like when a, when a consensus builder says it, it sounds kind of like a suggestion. So it's like, uh, Mike, you should really um, do some more prospecting. You're like, yeah, I'll do that. No, you won't. <laughs> You're not going to do that. Uh, that was a suggestion. But when I say, Mike, uh, from 9.30 till 11 o'clock each day, that 90-minute clock is, is sacred to us. You are going to call during that period of time because we need to get enough opportunities to make sure you're successful and that you're taking care of your family and that you're taking care of your clients. So this is what we do. And now it's not a suggestion. It is this is how we operate. And I've been very concerned, I would say, over the last couple of years in the way that salespeople are treated. And I, I always worry if the individual doesn't succeed, it's the leader's fault. The leader's responsible for that person. But then you start going out another step. Well, then that person's not taking home the income that they need to take care of their family as well as they would want to. And that's because we didn't raise a standard for that person. And then the clients don't buy from that person because that person doesn't have a high enough standard and doesn't create enough value. And then the company doesn't get the revenue, too. So every single stakeholder I can think of gets harmed. So what we want to do is grow people. We want to develop them. We want them to go from strength to strength and get better and better over time. And sometimes that means not being a consensus builder. And you'll have to pardon me, sometimes being an autocrat. And when I say that, people are like, you can't be an autocrat. Well, when it comes to your values, like honesty and integrity, are you an autocrat? I am. I'm, an, I'm a total autocrat on things like honesty and integrity. And there's a whole n number of things that you should probably be an autocrat on because it's important enough that you should do it and you should do it without fail. And uh, so that that's maybe something that Kevin, maybe he's already the autocrat and we need to get him to be more of a consensus builder. I don't know. You know Kevin better than I do because <laughs> I just heard his name one time and I have no that's idea. Right. Yeah, picture um, a young Luke Skywalker and that's Kevin. <laughs> he's ready to take on Darth Vader. That's right. That's right. Or become Darth Vader. You never know. It could go either way, according to Yoda. Um, <laughs> beware of the cave. Um, it's good talking to people from Gen X. Uh, we can go right back to 77. <laughs> I, absolutely. Absolutely. I still remember seeing Empire Strikes Back with my, uh, <laughs> my twin brother at the movie theater, and we made our mother take us like seven times. Like, this is the coolest movie ever made. Yeah, it, it was at the time, Is it, unless yeah. that's the one with the Ewoks. No, 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 that's Return of the Jedi. Yeah, no, that no. one didn't work. <laughs> not, not as well, not as well. But I do remember cheering um, <laughs> during during that one. But, uh, you know, I, we, we digress. <laughs> um, in terms of, um, 
you know, you, you've been working in sales for a long time. You've, you've written a number of, of books on it. Do, do you still learn new things All about sales and sales management? All the time. I mean, you can't not uh, run into things. So I just discovered something uh, that I'm, I just started teaching people. Every sales manager wants their salesperson to go to their first meeting with a client and then come back and immediately start typing in their CRM that, that brand new opportunity. Now, if there's not a second meeting, then that thing sits in the CRM until it's old enough to have a driver's license. I mean, they leave it in there like it's a security blanket. Like, look, we have all these opportunities. But if they never agreed to have a second meeting and they say something like, uh, Mike, uh, we really enjoyed that conversation with you. Why don't you reach out to us next week, like Tuesday or Wednesday, and we'll get back together. And that's the last time you're ever going to hear from them because you failed the audition. So what I realized is, Make sure they get the second meeting done. Now, if they get a second meeting and that person gave them another hour of their time, now we have some evidence that maybe it's an opportunity. So I've been sharing this with sales managers who are now starting to say, now you don't put that in until we have a second meeting because I don't need all these what what sales managers would call pipe lies. So we have pipelines, but we also have pipe lies. It's not real. <laughs> It's not real unless the client says, yes, I'd like to continue this conversation. So when that doesn't happen, so I figured that out in the last couple of weeks. Like, how do we clean that up? Don't let them put it in until we're sure it's really an opportunity. And then you'll have a better forecast and you'll look like you really know what's going on inside your pipeline. Yeah. And I'm not um, saying that for Kevin, but Kevin may want to know that. <laughs> Um, I want to reflect on one thing you mentioned earlier. We were kind of talking about sort of sort of more consultative selling, um, and it just reminded me of the story um, that my dad likes to tell. Uh, my dad's ninety now. He worked with he worked at American Express selling the card to merchants his entire career. Um, he was working there actually before they had a credit card. He was selling money orders, but um, he t- he tells this story. It's one of we call these like. Don Carlinisms, um, but he tells the story about um, after he retired, um, they he he worked he stayed on as a consultant um, because he he was you know he ran their whole field sales division, and they called him to go um, to Dollywood because Dollywood was what they characterized as a big holdout, meaning that they would not take the American Express card no matter what, so they would. You know, send salesperson after salesperson after salesperson down there, and they just would keep saying no. So they said my my dad goes down, and before even talking about Amex, he just asks for a tour um, to see the grounds and to, to see it, because he'd never been there before. And after the tour was over, they basically said, you know, we like you. We're going we're gonna to sign up. He's like, well, I haven't even told you anything about American yeah. Express yet. And they literally said to him, you know, you're the only one from your company who asked to see a tour. And that's that's kind of what made the difference. Um, kind of, you know, there, there is that sort of relationship aspect to it. What, what, what's that magic, Anthony? Uh, you, you know me. That's it. Like, you know me. That, that is what it is. And if you care enough to learn about me and, and not just try to pitch me, I sold staffing since I was... Let's see, probably 
18 or 19. And now I'm at least 25 or maybe uh, slightly uh, ahead of that. But when I started winning deals, there was only like there was no consensus. You go to the decision maker and the decision maker, you have a conversation with them. They sign the contract. And what happened to me that that caused me to realize what I was doing wrong? I'm winning. So winning's good. But then because none of the people that worked in the place where we were sending temporary employees had ever seen my face, they had no idea who we are. They sabotaged me time after time. It took me a number of times before I realized if they don't see us on their floor, they are not going to work with us. Now, they can, the decision maker can sign the contract, but we're not going to get anything done here. So I made it part of our process when I became the sales leader for that. My, it's actually my mom's company that, that I was working for. Um, I made sure that we stand on the floor with them. Like we're going to go out, we're going to see who they are, what they're doing, uh, find out what works for them, what doesn't. And that changed our results immediately. And it's the same thing as your dad. Like you show up and you say, walk me through, tell me how things work. And that you're making an effort to get to know who they are and their values and what they need from you. And of course they want to buy from that person. Why wouldn't they? When everybody else comes in and says, I'm going to pitch you this thing, and then somebody else says, walk me through here first, that's a different salesperson. Yeah. Um, anything else you want to share with us about this latest book before I move on to some other questions? It's green. Uh, and, okay. And you can find it on Amazon, and uh, that, that's it. It's a, it's a green book. So if you care about sales and you care about revenue growth, this will be helpful for you. There you go. Well, one of the reasons why I like to talk to authors is to get to know authors a little bit more. Um, one way I like to do that is through pop culture. So, Anthony, I'm curious. When you were growing up, what were some of your favorite TV shows to watch? My, I mean, I, if you want to go all the way back, we go to Speed Racer. Okay. Yeah, so do you know that one? You remember Speed that? Speed Racer, one. Racer X. Who was the monkey? Not I don't Gleek. know what the monkey's name, but that's, there was a monkey for sure. <laughs> there was a monkey. Chim uh, Chim. Chim Chim was the monkey. <laughs> I, I would not have been able to pull that out. <laughs> um, I think it was Happy Days at the at the time, like that, that when I was really young. And then I think we got HBO, and um, I watched everything on HBO once we had a, a cable box. Yeah. So, like, the Elephant Band, all of those things back in the day, those were good. Well, they used to play the same movies on HBO, like, over and over again. Um, did, do you remember Not Necessarily the News? Yeah. That was a classic on HBO. Um, I HBO remember watching was great that. when that came out. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, good stuff. And they also, you know, were kind of on the leading edge of doing comedy specials for, um, for comedians and such. Uh, what about music? What did you like to listen to growing up? I played rock and roll from the time I was 15 till I was 26 years old. Uh, after I had a brain surgery, I, I went to college, so I stopped playing music. And in fact, uh, the grunge thing ruined what we were doing. We were a hair metal band, believe it or not. So I went to L.A. and did that sort of thing. Um, I originally fell in love with hard rock when, in, in 1980 when I was 13. Uh, the Back in Black album came out. and That's that, a seminal album. I mean, that was their first album with... Um Brian Johnson. Uh, Brian Johnson, yeah. yeah. And when I was a singer, the first band that let me sing with them, 
they said the only thing that you should be doing is Bon Scott. Like you're a dead <laughs> ringer for Bon Scott. And I was. I could do Bon Scott perfectly. Brian Johnson's a lot harder. I could do it, yeah. but it was not uh, very good for your vocal cords. So I, I fell into that. I, I can tell you um, the seminal experiences. Uh, Jan- July 6, 1982, I saw Def Leppard uh, and the band Crocus opened up for them. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, so that was... Was my- it the High and Dry? Were they touring High and Dry at the time? No, or? that was uh, Pyromania. Pyromania? Yeah, okay. so it was Pyromania, and Crocus had the Headhunter album with a, a hit on that. And it was the coolest thing I'd ever seen. Then I went and started going to every concert. And the one that convinced me that I had to become a rock singer was uh, Whitesnake, who opened up for Quiet Riot. And when Whitesnake was done, the entire front row stood up and flipped off Quiet Riot because... No kidding. Yeah, it was it was crazy. But I noticed that the women that happened to be there were all looking at David Coverdale. Oh, sure. Including my girlfriend. And <laughs> and then I realized I need to do what that guy's doing. <laughs> and and I did for a while. <laughs> I think if I if I have my rock and roll history um, accurate, and I might not on this one, but I think Rudy Sarzo, who was a bass player for Quiet Riot, wound up playing with Whitesnake. He did, absolutely. It was uh, maybe a year later. Yeah, yeah. And then Quiet Riot kind of fell uh, fell apart. My um, my, I th- my heart though for music is uh, the early seventies. So I like the Rolling Stones from like sixty eight to uh, eighty. Mm-hmm. And uh, the faces and stuff like that. That's what I faces really like. Faces was, uh, was Rod, Stewart. Rod Stewart. and Was Jeff Beck in Faces or am I thinking of... Um, that was another album, but it wasn't the Faces. So it was... It wasn't uh, Faces. It was Yard Ronnie Birds. Wood. Ron, yeah. Ronnie Woods. And the story about that is Mick Jagger was uh, talking to Rod Stewart at a party. And, uh, and Rod said, uh, Mick, you would never steal woody from me would you and he said no absolutely not (laughs) and a year later ronnie's gone ronnie's gone well it all happens for a reason but i am right there with you with uh with that music um i love it i I love you know how you you uh kind of gave a nod to grunge killing hair bands um i feel that pain as well i know Um, but the, the grunge guys I mean, almost all of the lead singers have taken their own lives. Yeah. I mean, in rock and roll, for me, it was like David Lee Roth, you know, uh, it was fun and it's supposed to be a party. And I'm like, you guys are like, you're making millions of dollars. You're rock stars. I mean, what did you want? Like, this is pretty good. And, uh, yeah. and they're gone. Most of them, except for Pearl well, Jam, right? Well, look at the three big bands. Well, three of the biggest bands, right? You've got Nirvana. Yeah. Um, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. I mean, you know, Chris Cornell Here, only died a couple the, of years the, ago, the but still. The guy from uh, Velvet Revolver. But, what, but he, oh, yeah. He was um, from um, Stone Temple Stone Pilots. Stone Temple Pilots. Yeah. yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. 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 And we still have Stephen Piercy and uh, Michael Sweet. And uh, I can name 100 more. Michael, uh, who's the guy from White Lion? Mike Tramp. <laughs> I didn't like him. I, 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 he, he played at a, a club that we played at. I, I didn't like those guys. They were uh, really arrogant because they had that hit. Yeah, well, I, Vito Brada kind of left the... Um, I think he was one of the greatest guitar players of that era, underrated, but he kind of left that whole scene. 
and I'm getting into dangerous territory because we can really go down a rabbit hole here. But I will, uh, <laughs> I will well, move we'll, on. We'll spare the audience. Yeah, pity we the will. audience. <laughs> well, the audience knows me pretty well, and they know I have a tendency to do this. So. Um, in terms of uh, writing, any any lessons you learned about writing the hard way, or writing or publishing that you learned the hard way? Thinking maybe back to the earlier, you know, your your earlier um, writings. I, I would just say that the the most important thing is to just to write a good sentence. I mean, and what what I've been practicing right now, and I have an editor that edits everything that I do. And I sent her a list, and I said, I'm going to write short sentences, very easy to read sentences, because I can write very long sentences, and I read people who write long sentences. So behind my uh, shoulder here is Christopher Hitchens. I don't know if you know Hitchens. Do you know Hitch? The name sounds very familiar. Yeah, he was a polemicist. He was a socialist, an atheist. and just, That's how I know him, is the atheist. Yeah, he's just one of the very best thinkers and, a, and an incredible writer. And you, you just have to write really good sentences. And it's, it's easy to write, but it's hard to write good sentences. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing I would say is that you've, you definitely, in business books... You need some sort of a hook. And uh, if you don't have some sort of a hook, it's hard for people to catch on to. Now, Leading Growth, the very first story, if you read the first story, that one seems to be a hook really quick for people. And uh, it's just a great story. And uh, I, I read it out loud to Tom Peters. And he's like, I'm going to tell that story every time I speak now. Yeah. And uh, last question I always like to ask is a little retrospective. If you could go back in time, maybe it's that that to that you know younger Anthony who's sleeping in front of the record store to buy those Kiss tickets, um, and whisper some words of advice to him. What would you tell your younger self, Anthony? Start a hedge fund. Start a hedge fund. <laughs> like don't don't waste any time on anything other than that. Uh, go start trading and learn this, and then um, go ahead and figure out how to create uh, incredible wealth. Uh, I miss there my go. time there, but if if I could, that's what I would do. Yeah. Um, do you still play music anymore, or are those days 100% behind you? 100% behind. Uh, I'm trying to determine if I could ever sing again. I would like to. Yeah. It's been about five years since I sang with a band, and I was maybe good for eight songs. And when I was a kid, it would be 40 songs a night. And, wow. Uh, but maybe I'll try again. Who knows? All right. Well, Anthony, thank you for coming by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.